Sydney outbreak set to worsen as Gladys extends lockdown. Former Liberal MP calls Morrison menacing wallpaper as his women problem continues. Russia and Indonesia collapsing under COVID. And the good news is about antelopes. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from an extended lockdown in Sydney is the impeccably researched investigator that is <laughs> Van Battam. How are you, Van? Uh, hi, Ben. Um, I miss you terribly. Uh, it is weird to think there is a hard border between us and I, I hope we too. get to see one another again. <laughs> really? Yeah, I miss you too, darling. I've got the dog in my arms. He can hear your voice through the system and he is determined that you must be around here somewhere. So this might be a Germanicus heavy episode, folks. So just be prepared for that. Of course, Van, I've called you the impeccably researched investigator because we've got some excellent, excellent news coming from the New York Times about your book, haven't we? Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, it's kind of it was a wonderful surprise this week uh, that my book QAnon and On uh, has had a preview in the New York Times, and they said really nice things about it. Yeah, they certainly did. They certainly did. It's you know I encourage everyone to check it out. New York Times is obviously a quality publication, and uh, it says here. And I, I quite... mean, I prefer one of the great newspapers of the world. I mean, I would prefer. <laughs> for that well it is actually one of the great newspapers of the world and has been for a long time and and i'm quoting here from the article which i've got in front of me van batham delivers the who what when and why of QAnon like you've never read before we meet all sorts of believers learn about their beguiling beliefs and shocking political connections this impeccably researched investigation comes together like a thriller one that just so happens to be non-fiction so it's coming out on the 27th of October, we will, of course, plug it again on this show many, many times. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be announcing pre-sale on Twitter soon. So, and uh, obviously Facebook and everything else because I can't help myself. So if you do want to snaffle up a copy as soon as it comes off the presses, you'll be able to do that. And everybody's getting a copy of the book for Christmas. That's the only presents I'll be handing out. So <laughs> look out for that in your stocking. Now, Van, obviously you're in Sydney and more terrible news out of Sydney today, 37 more cases of COVID-19. 24 of those people were not in isolation during the entire time they were infectious. Seven were uh, active in the community the entire time during their infectious period. There are now seven people in ICU in New South Wales. Uh, many of them under the age of 55. This entire situation now, of course, Gladys has extended the lockdown in the Greater Sydney area, which was due to end, I believe, this Friday. Yeah, but it's now going until the 17th of January. July. Oh, July, sorry. <laughs> the 17th. <laughs> right. I've been right. away so long. You know, I was just thinking this is actually the longest time we've ever been apart since we got together. Wow, there you go. Yep, this lockdown with me in Sydney and you over the border in um, Victoria, it is really difficult for me to process just what this is like. And, 
you know, I feel like lockdowns just follow me wherever I go. I'm getting slightly paranoid uh, about that. Although I am double vaccinated and have always tested negative to coronavirus, everybody don't get any ideas. But yep, they've said 17th of July, what that's going to mean for borders and whether Sydney stays a, a red zone, who knows. Uh, I just caught the tail end of the press conference when I was downstairs when I was downstairs before, yep. and the warning is that tomorrow's numbers are likely to be quite disturbing. Well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? Because you know when you've got twenty four people who are diagnosed in a day who are not or were not entirely isolated during their infectious period, that's a bad sign. There's further detail as well that I think. People need to be aware of. So there were five unlinked cases in Canterbury, Bankstown, three unlinked cases in Fairfield, and one unlinked case in Liverpool. This this means that these are people who are not able to be traced to an existing cluster or outbreak within the currently diagnosed um, patients. And of course, that in itself suggests that there'll be significantly more cases yet to come. And and frankly, Van, you know, Brad Hazard has suggested that at some point we may need to just accept that there'll be lots of cases. Um, and it, frankly, it's it's mind-blowing. The, the, the situation in New South Wales seems to be even worse than anything we faced in Victoria, and yet the, the government there seems to be trying to prepare and soften the ground for this idea that, well, we'll just end up with lots of people going into ICU. There are people on ventilators. Uh, my understanding is that at least one person is on ventilation in uh, New South Wales, possibly more. Uh, and yet the government seems to be suggesting that, well, if the government can't do its job and get the thing under control and the federal government can't do its job and roll out the vaccines, that somehow or another the people of New South Wales will just have to suffer through. It's really interesting being here because I, it's, I've got to say, like I, I spoke on the program last week about how I had brought my Victorian lockdown sensibilities with me to Sydney and was very surprised by, you know, a pretty laissez-faire attitude towards social distancing and masking and no QR codes. And I spoke about that last week. A week later, I'm even more aware of the profound cultural difference that that coronavirus has created between Victoria and New South Wales. And I'm thinking I'm, I'm writing a column about it because it feels like I'm from a different country. Like I compared myself on the phone today to like when Nikita Khrushchev visited Hollywood. Like <laughs> it's just, it's so dissimilar to what has defined my existence for the past 18 months. Um, everybody's still very loose with masks, you know, and it's more than that, you know, the attitude of the New South Welsh people around me is that, look, it's we've got it all under control, it's all fine, the tracing everybody, the tracking everybody van, it's going to be fine. And it's a bit, it's a little bit power of positive thinking going on here, whereas I'm from the lands of doom where literally everything, like where I think we got through lockdown in Victoria by convincing ourselves everything would be worse tomorrow and then if it wasn't, it was just, that was great. Like that, how amazing, but it'd probably be terrible tomorrow. And we were just in this really sort of Soviet mindset about we'll just follow the rules and 
we'll, you know, keep everything under control. There's not much we can control in a pandemic, but what we can control, we will do, you know, and it was very much like onward community kind of stuff. It's not like that here. It, it's still very loose here. Like where I am in the suburbs, it's, you know, like on the street watching neighbours come and go and go into one another's houses with no masks on and people yeah. accept deliveries from delivery drivers who aren't always masks, masked. And, and I'm just, the power of positive thinking is not working for me. It's making me feel incredibly isolated and paranoid, like a stranger in a strange land who wants to scream, do you not see what is coming? And when I saw that clip downstairs where they were saying, um, yeah, be prepared, like prepare yourself for the numbers tomorrow. For those of you who don't know Sydney particularly well, Fairfield, Liverpool and Canterbury-Bankstown are out in the greater west. Like, remember, Sydney radiates for enormous um, distances in mm. every direction. Um, and it, part of the thing is that the, the communities in Sydney are quite separated. Like, you know, there's this sort of vast community in Western Sydney that it, it's it, millions of people live there. Yeah. And if the virus mm. has gotten into... Liverpool and and Canterbury and um, Fairfield, like that's that's really concerning because that that means that there's been a massive radial spread of the of the virus from the places where it entered. I'm really <laughs> frightened. Like I'm not going to lie. Like I've been through this in Victoria, and it and it doesn't matter that I'm vaccinated, and it doesn't matter that my mother's vaccinated. It's just the idea that it feels. And this is this is a personal attitude. It feels like we're careening towards that kind of Victorian situation of ballooning cases without any of the bulwarks that were put in place. Somebody was saying to me that they just can't believe we had curfews in Victoria. Like, I just can't believe we had curfews and that everybody went along with that. And I was like, we should have curfews here. Are you crazy? Oh, my God. You know, like. Well, Especially because of all the international reading I've been doing about the Delta variants, and I know you've been reading some of that stuff too, yeah. and how quickly it travels through a community and a devastating impact. Well, this is the thing, and we've talked about this before, how, you know, in Australia, and I think you've specifically said, you know, in Melbourne, we've got quite a good connection to the international community. We We sort of pride ourselves on being aware of what's going on in the home country, wherever that may be. Um, of course, I refer more broadly than just the United Kingdom here, but Greece, Italy, Indonesia, China, Vietnam, or, you know, wherever people might be from. Um, and of course, now we're, you know, nearly 18 months of ostensibly closed borders, despite Morrison allowing business travellers, as I discussed on the weekend wrap, and you can, you can hear my um, disgust about that program uh, there. But Essentially now, people need to proactively find information about what's going on internationally. There are still 30,000-plus Australians stranded overseas, but we're seeing, you know, in Indonesia, just on our doorstep, almost the total collapse of their health system, of major, major need for oxygen, uh, international aid having to flow into that country, tens of thousands of cases every single day, hundreds of people dying. You know, I think sometimes in Australia we've we've sort of felt like, oh, well, we, we got through COVID. 
and that was last year, and now we're just sort of mopping it up. And the reality, of course, is that these variants are as dangerous, and in fact, in some cases, more dangerous than the first lot of variants that we faced. Well, I mean, we have to realise that we live in an interconnected world. Yeah. Like, it, and the situation in, in Indonesia is really is really something that we've got to be aware of because it, it impacts us massively. One, it shows us, so they were running a massive vaccine uh, program in Indonesia, but the virus moved faster than the program did. Yeah. Indonesia is our closest neighbour. Uh, it's a really significant trading partner to us. There are going to be economic and social consequences to the collapse of their health system. There's been a lot of pressure on Australia to intervene and to help out in Indonesia. But while we haven't got our own vaccine roadshow going properly here, it means we're not in the position that, as a prosperous Western country, we should be into uh, should be in to lend support to our neighbours. And the thing is, if we if we can't help Indonesia and Indonesia's health system does collapse, that is going to have a massive impact on trade in the region, it's going to have a massive impact on all kinds of different interrelated global systems. And this is why following the stories of coronavirus, we're not, we can put up all the borders that we like, but in terms of, you know, the passage of people to and from, but it doesn't actually make us a hermit kingdom. Our economy is totally integrated with that yeah. with the rest of the world. And there are economic, social, political um, impacts to these things everywhere. Well, they, so they say that, don't you? They say that, don't they? They say that you can stand in Darwin and you know stand on the the far northern tip of Australia and almost see Indonesia. You know, and at low tide, you could you could almost walk there and only have to swim part of the way. You know, that's three hundred million people on our doorstep, uh, and you know, lots of Australians have been to Bali, which is part of Indonesia. I know sometimes. People tend to forget that, uh, but it is—it's actually quite a close neighbour, and has increasingly become so over the last twenty or thirty years. As it's yeah, a close cultural neighbour. Yeah, because so many Australian kids learn Indonesian at school, and because Australian tourists are the lifeblood of Bali, because we have this cult, this culture exchange, because we have trading relationships, and all of these things. Like, you know, the when Australia realised where it was geographically, it was not where it was culturally um, during the kidding years and we pivoted towards being recognising that we are part of Asia and this is the Asian century, you know, those relationships have been nurtured and established in all kinds of different directions. Now Indonesia is in terrible trouble and what are we doing? Well, let's talk about what we're doing. So there was a very interesting piece of news about who exactly is jumping the queue with the vaccines in Australia in our haphazard, cack-handed rollout. Ben, would you like to perhaps um, tell this story? Because I don't know if I can tell it without getting sure. absolutely enraged. Sure. So the the Year 12 borders of St Joseph's in Sydney, which is a private uh, private school there, in Hunters Hill, uh, in very Hunters posh Hill. Hunters Hill. 100, 163 of them were mistakenly, mistakenly, apparently, um, I don't know how you mistakenly vaccinate people, but they were mistakenly vaccinated, mistakenly vaccinated. Now, these these border positions run about $50,000 a year. Um, I've, I've done a rough calculation that that's about $8 million 
worth of students got vaccinated in it by mistake by the New South Wales government. Brad, uh, New South Wales Health Minister up there, Brad um, Hazard. Hazard has said we should all just get over it. Mistakes happen. Uh, well, it's it's a pretty big mistake. These are yeah. So what happened are, was St Joseph's is if you grew up in Sydney, you know what St Joseph's is because yeah. it's the poshest of the posh. It's in one of the poshest suburbs. You know the poshest school in the poshest suburb kind of plays fifty thousand dollars a year for a year twelve quarter. Um, they uh, do scholarships for um, students who meet various criteria who are from Indigenous communities, and they have proactively made the argument to New South Wales Health that um, that these students from remote communities should be vaccinated. Remember our friend Melandiri McCarthy, who's a Labor senator from Northern Territory, she has been very vocal about the fact that the vaccine rollout, even though everybody who's um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in Australia is entitled to a vaccine if they're over the age of 16 because of yes. endemic health problems within First Nations communities, is wonderful legacy of colonialism. Um, all of so everyone above the age of sixteen is entitled to the vaccine, but the rollout hasn't been happening in the remotest and most marginal of communities. And obviously, people like Melandiri McCarthy are kicking off as they should. So St Joseph's made the argument that the students who they board from uh, remote communities, Indigenous students, um, should be getting this vaccine. Yeah, scholarship students. Um, I can't necessarily see, given what we know about structural yeah. economic racism in Australia, a lot of kids from those communities having a spare 50 grand a year to drop on that yeah, kind of that's school. Right. Yeah. So, um, so remember, the school approached New South Wales Health and then New South Wales went, Health went, oh, yeah, okay, come in for vaccination. And apparently a mistake was made that all of the students, whether they were Indigenous or not, were bussed off to be vaccinated. Now, it's very interesting. Maxine Bernaber-Clark, one of my favourite Australian writers, her 15-year-old son read this article as she reported on Twitter and made the point that at his school to get a vaccination, mm. um, that's part of a public program, there are like three documents that have to be signed by parents and it's a, you know, it's a massively complex exercise and obviously schools can't just arbitrarily decide medical care for students and yeah. all of these other stories have come out about, you know, parents getting phone calls about whether their kids can get aspirin and things like that. So at least 163 households were aware of the fact that these kids were going off to get the jab and they did. So, yes, it, only 4%, apparently, the statistics that have been reported, although the, the school, understandably, is keeping quite mum on certain issues. Um, but the other 96% were like, yeah, we'll get the jab, no problem. And they well, were scheduled to get it again when they came back to school. But this story has since broken. Yes, well, I think the, I think the numbers back in that a maximum of 4% would be, you know, scholarship students from remote communities, because I've got some numbers here that I think are relevant for people to consider, right? So the uh, that $50,000 a year border fee, there's a 25, 26,000 a year if you're not a border. Um, you can an absolute work, bargain. You can you can work some Chunk of the, change. You can work some of this stuff out, but you've got to you've got to dig pretty hard because these schools don't, frankly, they don't make it easy. You know their their annual report on their website from 2019. You go to the financial section; it's literally just two pie graphs 
that have percentage breakdowns. It doesn't actually tell you anything about actual financials. But when you do a bit of digging, as I have done since I read about this story and saw the Teachers Federation called the whole thing obscene, absolutely obscene, which I agree with, obviously. So they've raised, they've raised about $28 million in student fees. They've received at least another $5 million from the Commonwealth. And the scholarship fund, which is a registered charity, so separate tax-deductible charity organisation, which is registered with the Commonwealth, has spent about $1.5 million on scholarships. So when you break all that down, that, that does hold pretty true to the idea that about 96% of the people who would have received a vaccine probably were not eligible, um, and yet the school bust them there anyway. You know, and this is this is kind of, I think people are starting to wake up to this. Like I said, on the weekend wrap, we talked about the, the problem with the border control situation. Now, obviously, we've got problems with vaccines. And, and frankly, we're so far behind on vaccines. You know, we're so far behind on vaccine rollout. This idea that Morrison this week has got the army, uh, you know, they're trying to lift the profile of the army uh, as part of the rollout, uh, sort of almost encounter to this, this idea that they're bungling it so badly. We oh, still have aged care workers who are They love hiding vaccinated. behind flags and uniforms, the Liberals, don't they? Anything well, goes wrong. Anybody demands a bit of accountability, quick, find a flagpole, Boris. Let's hide behind it. Quick, quick, wear somebody in a uniform. They'll get distracted by shiny medals. Oh, my God, I cannot bear it. Well, it's it's just unbelievably poor. You know, we've got teachers in at-risk communities who aren't vaccinated. We've got people in aged care centres who aren't vaccinated. One of the CEOs of one of these privatised aged care facilities said that they thought, you know, workers who were not vaccinated should be applauded for coming to work. And and this this kind of cultural twist, this this the people like that and Brad Hazard seem to be trying to put on this, that somehow or another, you know, the failures of the Morrison government to roll out vaccines and the failures of the New South Wales government to competently administer the vaccine program and competently administer the state somehow or another should be seen as the heroism of the ordinary working person, when in actual fact, that's simply an attempt to distract. That's simply an attempt, as happened at the start of the pandemic. People might remember the kind of heroes of the pandemic, the frontline heroes. Well, of course, when people went, well, if I'm a hero, why am I not getting a pay rise? Why am I getting a pay cut? If I'm a hero, don't I get more than just applause? You know, what, what, what do I get for being a hero? Of course, that dried up. Now, of course, it's come all the way back around again, and we're back to trying to somehow or another talk about the the you know Brad Hazard today going well, you know it's not fair for people to put this issue with St Joseph's on the frontline health workers, and I stand with frontline health workers. It's like, mate, nobody's putting it on the frontline health workers. You know, you can stand behind army generals as much as you like. It's got nothing to do with frontline health workers failing. It's got to do with you and your liberal mates failing. Oh, yeah, oh, this is the thing. So it turns out, let's just put this in context. St Joseph's approached New South Wales Health. They yeah. made the approach. They initiated this. And if a mistake was made by New South Wales Health, who turned around and went, oh, okay, we'll organise 160, St Joseph's didn't call them out. They bust no. all the boys there. Now, if they knew enough to know that 
Indigenous kids over 16 were entitled to the jab, they knew enough to know that, you know, rich white boys, of which there's more than a few at St Joseph's, that they were not entitled to the jab, but they didn't do anything about it. And it's not, and, and it's not as though, Van, that, you know, because they're boarders, some of them might, I've seen some of them go, oh, well, they're boarders, you know, so they're in living in close quarters and they're at greater risk. Well, I'm sorry, but there are people in, you know, supported disability accommodation who... And public housing towers. ...who are not getting vaccinated, uh, who are at far greater risk, far greater risk than high school boarders. Uh, like, it's it's quite ridiculous that this, is, that this has come about. And frankly, you know, I saw... Uh, Kevin Rudd this week called for Greg Hunt to be sacked or to resign. You know, there there has to be a point at which the political leaders of this time face some kind of reckoning. You know, Morrison's disappearing acts for days and days at a time, the hiding behind generals, the blaming of public servants, the taking questions on notice and hoping the problem goes away, all this kind of smoke and mirrors attempts to avoid accountability. Well, these are... You know, the pandemic has exposed not just the flaws in the system around insecure work and the way the system is structured, but the flaws in which these kind of manipulators and charlatans exploit those flaws. People oh, absolutely. are death. Yeah, and like it's and people have gone, oh well, you know, it's one school. No, it's not. It's since come out that a very similar girls' school, obviously private school oh, yeah. with a lot of boarders, um, made the same approach to New South Wales health. Um, there was a third school that they've started talking about. Like, you know, it's opportunists and grifters gaming the system for their own advantage um, because they have the money and the influence to do so. That's all it ever is. You know, once upon a time in this country, we decided we didn't want an aristocracy, that we wanted to be a working person's paradise, and we put in all of these systems that were about creating oppor- equal opportunities for people you know, and prioritising care to those who needed it the most and ensuring that everybody had the same opportunity to health, you know, um, and happiness that you could possibly. I mean, I just get I get so angry. Like it, this whole St Joseph's thing just seems such a betrayal of what Australia is supposed to be. Like we're supposed to be this ongoing project of, of egalitarianism where we constantly assess and reassess where the, the gaps and the barricades are and try to be better as a country, you know, that we do recognise, you know, the historic injustices of the past and we try to fix them and accommodate them and, and restore, you know, a, a sense of constantly aspiring towards an equal society where you can be from anywhere and be anyone and have your chance. And that's not what's happening. No. How is it possibly acceptable that a bunch of rich kids were able to get on the bus and get a vaccine that, by the way, was not offered to their teachers? Yeah. Their teachers are not vaccinated. Well, I think, no. I, think this, I think this is a reminder, and I, and I want to bring up here the fact that now the New South Wales government has asked for JobKeeper to be restored, something the Victorian government asked for during, during lockdown and was refused. Uh, and, and now the New South Wales government has asked, Josh Frydenberg uh, has publicly refused that as well. I think, I think these issues demonstrate that, we, that the, the struggles of the past are never fully won. You know, like you're right, there was a time in Australia 
where we came very close to having an aristocracy, really. Um, some would say we had we had de facto aristocracy here, and and we upended that. We upended that in this country um, through a whole series of things that working people did. Working people stood together and said, "No, we're not going to have that. We're going to have. We're going to make this a better place than England. We're going to make this a fairer place than England. We're not going to have an aristocracy rule over us." And we continue to fight those struggles. And I think, you know, this is where I'm going to plug our sponsor, Australian Unions, because, you know, they're out there again today talking about these issues. You know, the Teachers Federation has made that exact point about the St. Joseph's issue, that there are teachers who would have been more eligible for the vaccine who didn't get it. But, you know, standing together in Australia, we have made change. We brought about Medicare, superannuation, minimum wages, you know, so I saw an article that said that one of the um, one of the frauds of Australia is this idea of egalitarianism. Well, I don't I don't believe that for a moment because I know there's nearly two million Australians who are in unions who believe in egalitarianism, who do know that standing together makes change. That's why you know what I like to say. You know what we like to say, Van? Go to AustralianUnions.org.au/backslash. Wow. And join your union today because that's how we make positive change. Like there's no question that the situation in Australia with the vaccine rollout is totally bunkum. Like it's totally wrecked. And frankly, it's the fault of the Morrison government. What's going on in New South Wales is just phenomenal and, and terrifying to watch. And, you know, our family's been split. Lots of families around the country will have been split. I saw Ben Law tweeted today that the we've reached a point in Australia, words to this effect, that we've reached a point in Australia where people are jealous and resentful of other Australians being able to get the vaccine. You know, and that's that's not because Australians are naturally jealous and resentful. That's because we've been forced into a situation where it's almost dog eat dog. And that's not who we are as a people, actually. That's not who we are as a people because you'll find people do come together. But when the rich are prioritised simply because they're rich, simply because they're born rich, that's when Australians are resentful. That's when we're unhappy with the situation. So, I think it's because, you know, part of it is that it offends our sense of fairness. Yeah. Like... If you have a go, you get a go. Remember that? If you have a go, you, you'll get a go. There's yeah, a lot of if people... you have a go, you get a go. And people believing that the rules exist in order to make things fair. Yeah. And it is not fair that there are, I mean, people in the disability sector were outraged yesterday talking about this and the fact that there are people who are living in very compromised circumstances uh, with enormous amounts of health risks who have not been vaccinated and then literally the people with the most advantage, young, healthy, rich kids, got bust off to get a vaccine. Now, I'm not saying New South Wales health conspired to make that happen, no. but I am saying that the schools, because there's more than one of them, have proactively sought out that privilege. They've proactively sought it, and yeah. they didn't stop the vaccinations from going ahead if a mistake had been made. In fact, the school was the one that dumped... New South Wales health in it and went, oh, well, you know, they told us that this was fine, so it was fine kind of thing. Yeah. And I tweeted yesterday, and I, this has been the motto of my entire life, 
do not do favors for toffs they will never do favors for you yeah well that's that's the thing isn't it look i want to move on because uh we've spent a lot of time on this issue and it's frankly one we're going to end up having to talk about again next week there's no question about that now because um, i'll still be in sydney well you'll still be in sydney lockdown will still be on and the numbers <gasps> as we've been told will probably be worse between now and next Wednesday. But I do want to talk briefly about that international situation. We've talked about Indonesia already. Russia is now going through a third wave. And one of the points I want to make here for people listening, you know, again, just some numbers. So Russia, about one in three people in Russia is an anti-vaxxer now. This is essentially where they've got to. They will refuse to have a vaccination. And we'll go into the reasons why in a moment. And yet, despite the fact that one in three Russians is essentially an anti-vaxxer, they have more than double the number of people as a percentage, as a percentage, who have actually received both doses of vaccine. So even though Russia, for all of its faults, which we'll go into, and its anti-vax crowd being one in three, they've still managed to get more than twice as many of their population as we have vaccinated. That, folks, is a remarkably disappointing, terrifying condemnation of the Morrison government, in my view. But Van, what is going on with Russia? Because they're having a huge outbreak, aren't they? Well, people don't trust the government in Russia. Frankly, I mean, you can't really. Yeah. Well, you and I have both been there, and you can and you can see that come through just about every every day. You know, Ben and I are always threatening to do some content that we put. Um, behind like a Patreon or something and Van and Ben tell stories about what happened to them in Russia, I think uh, could be a, a real reason to do that. We won't go into them here, but yeah. yeah. But let, us, not... let us know if you, let us know if you think that's content worth paying for. Yeah. So especially the bit where I get kidnapped by the mafia, that's, that's a great yeah, bit. Yeah, but, but... Um, and you and the dude whose arm gets cut off. So yeah, Russia, not exactly the stablest little table in the world when it comes to being a country. Um, and of course, what's happened is they pushed the Russian vaccine, so they've, they've made three vaccines in Russia. One of them doesn't work and is popularly accredited uh, as being a dud. Um, the Sputnik V uh, vaccine has been exported to other countries with various problems. And, you know, they promised certain numbers of doses and didn't deliver them, but is a vaccine that works. Um, unfortunately, what's happened in Russia is that, you know, it's an autocracy uh, the government oversees propaganda as opposed to news and information. Um, there was a lot of misinformation about the coronavirus at the beginning of the outbreak. So uh, what happened was the population was aware of the fact that this thing was just ripping through communities and people were dying. And while Russian TV, state TV was going off, you know, look at the West and all these people are dying and hundreds of thousands of people are dying in America and that's not happening here. There just happens to be a really unseasonable outbreak of transmissible pneumonia. Yeah. And everybody was dying of trans, like this bizarre transmissible pneumonia. It just happened. I mean, it was a cold winter. And it's like Russia's pretty cold usually uh, is my experience. So I don't necessarily think that this is what yeah. you are saying it is. And, of course, once a government does that, trust is completely destroyed. And the thing is, there's a big anti-vax community in Russia because Russian news services have been um, that focus on um, foreign populations like RT, which is Russia Today, which is their foreign-facing news organisation, has been spreading and promoting and boosting anti-vax positions for years. And they do it as part of 
you know, these broad sort of internet propaganda efforts, which they call active measures, which are about basically screwing with democracies and, and inciting various groups to rise up against one another and not trust their government. And they do it to sort of create these images of the West that are chaotic and divided, which they can then broadcast back to Russians going, see, you wouldn't want to live there. What a nightmare. Everyone hates each other. And, of course, what's happened is that very same material has blown back to the Russian population. So the kind of anti-vax conspiracy theories that various, you know, Russian-related entities have been pushing through their octopus uh, presence on social media for years have come back to bite them. Their own destabilisation efforts are now creating instability at home. Yes. So, I mean, we've got this problem in New South Wales with coronavirus. You know, that's 35 cases a day. Tomorrow it will be worse. In Russia, it's 22,000 cases a day now. Now. Not in the past. Not in the outbreak. Now. And it's, it's, they're running behind what's happening to them. And, and, you know, this, this is the, this is the thing that I think in Australia we have been so lucky and so fortunate and blessed by geography and all the all the usual sort of natural advantages that have allowed us to prosper in in, in over such a period of time, uh, and we forget that even countries where they've vaccinated twice as many people as a percentage of the population as we have, they're still having huge outbreaks, and. And in the UK, they're still having thousands of people being diagnosed with COVID. You know, vaccination will help us get things under control. Uh, and it's absolutely vital because if we're going to get to any kind of normality, we're going to have to get vaccinations happening. Uh, but COVID will still be and still is a deadly, dangerous, highly infectious, highly contagious disease, which will disrupt things. Um and yeah, to see what's happening in Russia is is sort of a, a a lesson, really. I think, in terms of be careful, be careful what you put out into the world, lest it should end up in your own doorstep. Um, and in some ways, also a lesson around: well, you've got to stay in front with the vaccine program, and you've got to actually be engaging and building trust. And well, see, what's happened in Russia is that now they've fallen behind and infections are out of control. The government have now mandated that all service workers and all public servants must be vaccinated. And unless you can provide a vaccination certificate, you can't go into a restaurant, for example. You can still go to a rally for the United Russia Party, but um, but there's now a thriving black market in fake vaccination certificates. <laughs> That's not the Russian solution to the problem. (laughs) While we're talking about trust, I I do think we need to just move on um, to some of the revelations that have come out this week uh, from the former Liberal MP. uh, Julia Banks, the former member for Chisholm. Yeah, the Mm. former former member for Chisholm, uh, who has described Scott Morrison as menacing wallpaper and whose lack of trust in the Morrison government is so deeply rooted that she refuses to give an interview uh, to Kate Jenkins, who, of course, is uh, doing the investigation into the culture of the uh, parliament and the working conditions uh, as they relate to women and the sexism that's been going on there uh, in the post-Brittany Higgins um, revelations. She's 
has no trust or faith in the Morrison government to conduct that. And she's made that very clear that it's not about the commissioner, the former commissioner, Kate Jenkins. It is about the Morrison government. And uh, so she sent a copy of her autobiography, uh, which outlines her experiences under the Morrison government. And what a horrendous tale it is. I mean, it's it's really exposes just how awful uh, the experience for women has been under the Morrison government, even if you're supposedly part of it, Van. Oh, it's absolutely shocking. It's shocking. So Julia Banks uh, was elected in 2016 um, after the retirement of Anna Burke. Anna Burke was Labor member for, I think, 18 years, had been hugely popular in the seat. Nobody gave Julia Banks a chance. Um, she was a corporate lawyer. She, highly intelligent woman, um, very on brand with that sort of Turnbull Bishop, um, you know, like yeah. economic conservative values, but still sort of convinced of the delusion that the Liberals are somehow a small L Liberal Party. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's Julia. A from, it's a government from the senior executive suite, right? That was what they yeah, were going to yeah. run. Yeah. So, um, and of course, she gets elected very barely. Like she is a marginal seat, but there she was. And of course, the reality is very different. Liberal Party is not liberal at all. And uh, was subjected to just intense and appalling sexism from the moment she walked in the door. There were attacks on her age. You know, she was constantly minimised and put down. And I think for her, the shock was that it's not like this in corporate Australia. Like you have a, a genuine small liberal feminism, which has promoted women and women on boards and you know that's it's not the I don't think becoming more powerful in a capitalist economy is liberation for women but that's the ideological distinction that people like Julia Banks make like you know we just need women in the door and then some women can make money and it doesn't matter if poverty exists because we'll no longer be gendered I don't I don't really think we have evidence to suggest that works but everybody's entitled to delusions so um so, of course, she's gone into the Liberal Party and it's not like the C-suite at all. Like it is a gross sexist place where power is concentrated amongst, I think we all know this now, I think we have enough hard evidence to say that power is concentrated amongst gangs of misogynists who think women are entirely expendable um, and that she was swept up in that. And, of course, the revelations include things like she was sexually assaulted by a colleague who put his hand up her thigh. like. Yeah. As she was going into, it's like she was going into Parliament, and somebody decided to just touch her up because she was there any good. I mean, it's just outrageous. the 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 Morrison, the Morrison government's uh, entire approach towards towards equality in the general community uh, gives you the impression that that's the sort of awful culture that they would allow to run right. I mean, I was reading some stuff that Julia Banks was saying uh, about the, you know, the parliament as a workplace and all the rest of it. I think, I think the broader issue is actually the, the broader problem. Uh, and, and frankly, it's starting to see, you're starting to see the numbers come through in some of the polls that have been released this week too, that, you know, women in Australia are saying that Morrison is a problem, that his government is a problem, uh, that it does have an impact on their lives that, you know, talking about uh, childcare as outsourcing parenting is a result of the culture within the government. And then that reflects in policies where childcare is unaffordable. Women find it harder to go back into the workplace. Women actually retire in more poverty 
uh, you know, there's so many structural things that need to be addressed to deliver real equality for women that in some ways what happened to Julia Banks and what's happened to other women in the parliament and in the Morrison government is 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 almost unsurprising you know if that's the if that's the kind of policy and culture that you're running then that's going to be reflected amongst the people running it and how they interact with other people on a day-to-day basis and of course it's unacceptable of course it's unacceptable uh it, but it's sort of shockingly unsurprising and it it you know, it has had some impact now. It's starting to have some impact now on Morrison's support amongst men as well, which is good to see. Finally, I think. But it's it... not having an impact amongst co- like coalition activists. No, no. So there was a pre-selection this week for who the Liberal candidate in the seat of Bowman is. Of course, Bowman is where Andrew Lamming, yeah. the infamous Andrew Lamming, yeah, yeah. is retiring. And we have to be careful retiring. what we say about it, Andrew Lamming because he has... He's very litigious. There's I been a number of say. number of odd odd social media statements from individuals about statements they've made about Andrew Lamming in the past. So we, we're, not gonna, we're not going to go into too much detail about Andrew Lamming's behaviour, but you can find that uh, in any major publication in Australia, just uh, if you want to search Andrew Lamming on the SMH or the Guardian or any of those, you'll or find... Or Simpsons Against the Liberals, any of those are fine. You'll find plenty of detail. So Andrew Lamming is leaving Parliament and the Liberals are pre- have been pre-selecting his replacement. The candidate field was five people, uh, four of them were women. The sole gentleman amongst them uh, has a record of fat-shaming women and breaking COVID uh, uh, restrictions and uh, cruised to pre-selection. The, the branch president has resigned going, I can't see a path to victory. Like, yeah. what on earth are we doing? And, yeah, so the and fat shaming a, guy beat all the chicks. And Good on you, fat shamer. And there was another revelation today. I saw that the national candidate for the Senate in New South Wales who beat out former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson and one of the, you know, very prominent farming activists amongst the Nationals uh, in New South Wales. Uh, he's a former state director of the National Party and now works, uh, I believe, for the Port of Newcastle. Uh, he's been pre-selected into the only winnable seat for the Nationals in the Senate, almost a guaranteed Senate seat. Uh, turns out there was an apprehended violence order taken out against him. It was later withdrawn, uh, but the pre-selectors weren't made aware of this in what was a very, as I said, contested pre-selection, uh, and he maintains he's done nothing wrong. Uh, it's, a, it's, just a, it's just a ridiculous situation, frankly, that, that, that there are people whose behaviour you wouldn't put up with, and as Julia Banks rightly points out, in my view, she rightly points out, the corporate Australia wouldn't tolerate this. We just wouldn't tolerate it uh, in any company. You know, you wouldn't tolerate it down at the corner store. You know, you and I often, you know, I often say to you, the Morrison government is, you know, the failed used car salesman that, that's left over from the from the Howard era. Well, I got to say, I don't know many used car salesmen who'd accept this kind of behaviour these days either. Frankly, no. Good lord, no. Oh my God! Can you imagine? Can you imagine if somebody, like, I, I, I can't even. When she talked about that incident of the of the dude touching her up, 
I was just like, if that happened in any other workplace, they would be automatically fired. Like that would be, you would yeah. absolutely lose it. You would be on the phone to your union. You would like, if that was your boss, you would just be like, this has happened. And it would be an absolute bonfire of rage. You know, there would be reports in newspapers immediately. This can't go on. This is not okay. You know, people shut down, like the whole thing. But in Parliament House under Scott Morrison, and that's the thing too, like Julia Julia Banks has been very clear that Morrison wasn't interested in stopping any of the sexist behaviour. Yeah. He wasn't interested in the stopgap and the misogyny. In fact, it was in Scott Morrison's interest for there to be very aggressive backgrounding against Julia Banks that somebody was doing, saying, oh, well, you know, she never got over um, Turnbull being rolled and she was from the other faction and yeah, 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 yeah. And this absolute massacring um, an attempted massacre of her character that went on. And it's really disturbing. Like, he's the Prime Minister. Like, oh, it, you are it, supposed to be elevated by the responsibility of the role. Whether you're a Tory or a Labor person, mm. you know, it doesn't matter. Once you become Prime Minister, everybody is your responsibility. And the idea that you can just write off 52% of the population because, you know... They're, you gender them differently and they're just not as important. It's disgusting. It it's actually disgusting. disgusting. It is disgusting and, and it tracks as well. You know, we've seen we've seen Morrison's office and the Morrison government background against Brittany Higgins, background against the chief health officer, background against the premiers. You know, this is this is a government that is determined to divide people. And it brings me back to what Benjamin Law said, you know, this idea that we culturally get to a stage where we resent uh, other people uh, and, and, and it goes and it flies in the face of what Australian culture is. And you said it before, you know, we, we, do, we do pride ourselves on the kind of culture we have. And the Prime Minister leads that. The Prime Minister leads the culture of the nation. That's, that's been the case for a very long time in this country. And Morrison has a very toxic, very toxic cultural influence on Australia. I don't think there's any question about that. Now, Van, we're going to have to go on to some good news because my mum has uh, just arrived and wants to help set up some office furniture and <laughs> Manicus is running around like crazy now that Nana is here. So let's talk about the good news, which, well, firstly, uh, we're going to talk about a new, new good news story and then we're going to have a bit of a catch-up on an old one. But Van, tell me the good news about antelopes and the double oh. of the population. Oh my God. So there's some really good news from Kazakhstan. And it has to do with the iconic Kazakhstan antelope, which is the Saiga. And the Saiga is just, yeah, the Saiga. It's an amazing creature. It has a very unusual face, it's got horns, and it lives in kazakh wilderness areas and it two years ago in 2019 it was listed as critically endangered because of course habitat destruction hunting poaching all of these things and had massively decimated the population anyway the kazakh government went actually we love the saiga what are we doing who are we as a people to abandon this beautiful iconic animal we've got we've got to do something so they buckled down and they worked with conservation groups and local government and communities and corporations and when we're saving this animal like it that's just that's what we're doing we're, that's what we're protecting doing. habitat yep we're going to save this wilderness the wilderness all over the world is shrinking we're not letting that happen here 
we're we're going to save the saiga. Well, the saiga is an incredible animal and it's incredibly resilient and it lives on the steppes and, yeah. you, you know, it's just it's just one of those amazing creatures that, by the way, if you stare at it for a full minute, will turn you into an environmentalist, and um, which is clearly what happened in Kazakhstan. And it's worked. And in two years, the population has gone from about 350,000 to 850,000 because they give birth. They're so amazing, these animals. They give birth to twins. Amazing. And so because they've, they've had doubled a bit of the population. Yeah, and they, but they took a really hard line against poaching, which was the big issue as well with the with the saiga. So hopefully the saiga is back and thriving and everybody's really proud of it. That's fantastic. Which is, yeah. just makes me really happy. And you should look up pictures of them because they're just amazing they're creatures. adorable. Now, we, we talk about a good news story every week on this show and it's great to be able to revisit one of those stories that has improved uh, with time, has become an even better news story. Van, tell okay. us about so, airships. So I love airships. I love air, airships. And they're bringing them back. They're coming back. So a company in Britain, um, which has been backed by Bruce Dickinson, who's the lead singer of Iron Maiden. That's right. He's got all the money in the world because he's from Iron Maiden. And he is into airships as well. And he has been investing in this British airship company for the past eight years to, on hybrid airship models. So check out that, check out our previous episode for more on that. And it, but there's been some new developments, right? Yeah, yeah. So they've they've built this airship, um, which is has like a hybrid engine. So it's it's you know they can solar power them and do all these things to them. They use eight percent of the fuel that a plane does on the same distance. Yeah. And the British government the government of Boris Johnson. So let's just put all of that into context when, yeah, actually this is really viable. So the British government are now investing in it as technology as well, as they should, because new technology, um, good patents, growth, jobs, infrastructure, like all of these things. So, yeah, so the British government is coming to the party and the days of the hybrid dirigible um, are ahead of us. And I'm really excited. Like That's I, fantastic news. Yeah, you know, I get a bit excited about um, environmental transport solutions is definitely one of my interests. Well, we're going to have to find a way to get around at some point when the virus is over that doesn't involve burning dead dinosaur bones. Um, And that seems like it might be one of the ways we can do that. So, look, that is the week on Wednesday for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing this episode and every episode. Thanks again to our sponsors, Australian Unions. Remember, we can make change if we stand together. Join your union today. Go to Australian Yeah, go union. on, join a union. Just uh, do it. It's a tax deduction. And lots of people are. I've, I have to say it's been great uh, getting feedback from all the people joining their union. Um, you know, I, I was in a former life an, uh, a union organiser. And i got to say, you know, uh, where more people are joining the union by listening to our podcast than there were some some weeks when I was uh, out there knocking on doors as an organiser. So australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union. Don't forget to subscribe, like, share, comment, you know, talk to people about these issues, get involved. There's no reason, there's no reason why things can't change for the better uh, and of course, I will be back with the weekend wrap, and Van will be joining us once again from lockdown Sydney next week. I miss you. <laughs> I miss you too, darling. And I want to thank everybody for their messages of support. 
we know that we're very fortunate in a very privileged position, both of us, Van and I, um, despite the distance and despite the, the hard border between us. And we know lots of Australians are doing it tough at the moment. So we really appreciate all those messages of support that have come in over the last week or so. Uh, and we, we stand in solidarity with everyone doing it tough right around and the I'd, I just want to say, you know, people are extremely nice to us. And in the past week, people have been like, oh, you know, um, get a meal on us. Or I'm just like, the best thing you could do for us would be support someone who doesn't have that opportunity. Yeah, support absolutely. somebody who doesn't have, you know, the the friends and the access and stuff that we have. You know, if you want to do something really nice for us, do something really nice for someone who nobody else is going to do something nice for. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of there's lots of people. There'll be lots of people all over Sydney who are living alone, who are doing it tough, or who are in you know difficult circumstances. So please do please do reach out to your friends. Maybe there's a family member you haven't spoken to in a while. Maybe there's a neighbour who you just know uh, is doing it tough. Reach out to them on social media or through the phone. And just remember, the more you do that, the less likely they are to join QAnon. And there's somebody who's just written a book about it. You do not want that to happen to anyone that you know. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is the week on Wednesday for this week. Thanks again. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. Bye, Jam. Bye.